Hi, this is Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at CITUS AMC. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. Okay, we are very fortunate today to have two special guests, both Eric Blankenstein and Mick Mulvaney. I will um, try to give a quick bio on each, and then I'll let the gentlemen introduce themselves. Mick, of course, was most recently, he was acting chief of staff for the president of the United States. He was acting head of the CFPB, and he was also the director of OMB. Prior to that, Mick spent some time as a representative from South Carolina on the Hill uh, in the House. He's a former builder. I think that was a family business. Uh, backgrounds from uh, degrees from Georgetown, UNC, Chapel Hill, law degree, and Harvard University. So real quick, let me thank Mick for joining. Mick, thank you. Happy to be here. And Eric. So Eric also spent some time at the CFPB. He was over supervision and enforcement. Uh, he spent a period of time at Ginny May, where he was the COO and EDP. Eric now has his own law firm, which is the by name, Eric Lankenstein Law Offices. They do a lot of regulatory work, litigation work. And I forgot to mention that Mick now is the co-chair of Actum Strategic Advisors. But with that pivot, Eric, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. So real quick, I mean, the purpose of these things is really to kind of explore the intersections between Washington, D.C. and real estate markets. So there's probably nobody better that I can think of than certainly Mick for articulating that that intersection, that cross-section between the federal government, state governments, and the housing market. A lot of the issues that we try to tackle is that strategically, what can we see or glean from what's happening in and around D.C. to see how it might eventually manifest in some sort of a positive or negative impact on the housing market? So I think the best general question to kind of start with, Mick, is how do you think about the government's role in housing? How has it changed? And maybe what do you think the ideal role is? The role of government in housing, probably screwing it up. Keep in mind, before I, back when I was a real person, before I came to Washington, D.C., I was a third generation home builder and then the real estate development business. In fact, I got into politics talking about land use law back in the Carolinas where I practiced law. And um, my grandfather was a home builder. My dad was a home builder. My wife's mother was a home builder. So I mean, we've got it on both sides of the family. So I've been paying attention to this in one way or another since the mid-1970s. Because when you're eight or nine years old in 1975 and dad comes home and explains to you that mortgage interest rates are 17% and it's going to be a thin Christmas, you pay attention fairly closely. You know, we could talk about the, the impact of the federal government. I know you want to do that. We talk about the impact of the state and local government. There's very few industries in this nation, if you stop to think about it, that are as heavily regulated as home building, which is bizarre to me. I get pharmaceuticals. I guess I understand energy and extractive sort of uh, industries and so forth. But home building is regulated at the federal level, the state level, and the local level. It's, it's hard to find anything that is less regulated. If I had to start, let's start at the local level because that's where most land decisions are made. You want to start there? You want to start at the federal level? What do you want? Well, I like the federal. I mean, the states just because it's each state it's is obviously a little bit different, but obviously the permitting and all of that stuff happening is at the state level and zoning and land use and all that fun stuff. I was thinking more along the lines of 
the government's role in either subsidizing mortgages on the demand side, fiscal stimulus for the supply side, which should happen any minute now. It's only been 100 <laughs> years or so. That sort of stuff, would, I think, is particularly interesting. Yeah. Let's be completely candid. We've had a tax bias towards homeownership in this country for the last, what, 70 years, probably? I can't remember when the mortgage interest rate deduction started. My guess is it was after World War II. Maybe it was before. I'm, I'm not really, I'm old. I'm not that old. And so we, we, had, we made a policy decision as a nation that people owning their own homes was a good thing. I think that's still right. Eric and I were talking just today about the, you know, some of the recent press coverage about how it's now a a better financial decision, supposedly, to rent than it is to own. And while that's probably ostensibly true, at least sort of in a snapshot, if you rent, one of the, the reasons homeownership is so important is it's how most Americans save, right? They're forced to save money. And it is the largest portion of most Americans' household wealth comes from their household. And if you rent, you don't do that. You can recreate it. You can take the money that you're paying, you don't pay, you know, you pay a little bit less to rent than you do to own. And if you took that money and invested it <laughs> in real estate, for example, you might be able to sort of recreate the same savings environment that you would at home ownership, but it's really, really hard. And you have to have a lot of discipline to do it. Over the course of the last, say, well, I guess since the great the financial crisis, we've really, of course, leading up to the financial crisis was caused by government intervention in the markets. And I still think that we've continued to warp the market forces in a negative way since the global financial crisis. So we talk more about that today as we go through the details and stuff. But Eric knows a lot more about than I do about the role of the GSEs. All I remember is trying to, to get rid of them um, <laughs> back when I was in the House Financial Crisis. you weren't successful. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I, I had this fight with Jeff Hensling all the time because I was in the camp that I wanted them to rebuild their balance sheets. Amen. Yes. Because I didn't think they would ever be privatized. You know, he wanted to privatize them. I'm like, okay, Jeff, yes, I get that. That's cool. But the balance sheet is shit. Can I say shit on a podcast? I'll let it slide. And you know, no one's ever going to want to buy something that looks like this. If, if you let them build their balance sheet a little bit, it might have something that somebody might be interested in buying. And we fought about that a good bit. I lost because he was the chairman and I wasn't. Um, but so we've been involved, I've been involved in trying to resolve the GSE thing, but Eric understands a lot more than I do about how it actually works on the inside. Can I ask a question about that real quick? Yeah. Did you guys, when you were talking about what to do with the GSEs, contemplate the impact that a different form of GSE would have on the 30-year mortgage? Because You did. And Jeb sort of, as I recall, it's now been, goodness gracious, it's been eight years longer since we've had this conversation. Jeb was going to have a mandatory requirement that it still be offered. I can't remember if we did that. VA, I think, still had the mechanism to do it, even if we got rid of uh, Fannie and yeah. Freddie. And um, FHA, too, right? There's is a that what it was? Yeah. There's the federal lending programs that are independent of the GSC. So it would not have gone away entirely. Yeah. And plus, look, and I know everybody loves a 30-year, and I do, too. I mean, I, that's what I've got, right? But... We haven't had a 30-year since the beginning of time. Europe still doesn't have a 30-year. Their home ownership rates are not that far behind ours. Last time I checked, maybe five or six percentage points. It's been a while since I looked at those numbers. But Europe simply, what, you do a, you do a 30-year amortization on a five-year balloon, and then you just simply refinance. So you, you can do that now. You can do that today. Look, a lot has changed. People think that 
there's a very short term perspective on life generally. And people think there's always been a 30 year and there's always been a zero dollar down at closing. It was never like that when I was a kid. Yeah, you had a 30 year, but a lot of people chose something else. And you had to bring 20% to the table to buy a house in the 1970s. So, and we still had high rates of home ownership. So there's no magic formula in my mind about the 30. We like it because we're used to it and it's comfortable, but it, there's no, in my mind, no intrinsic tie between home ownership and this magic 30 year zero down. Yeah. And I'm always of the default view that supply will find demand. And if American homeowners want a 30-year mortgage and the government's not providing that, then why wouldn't kind of secondary and tertiary insurance market? The insurance company would love a 30-year. Exactly. They would love a 50-year. They'd love a 100-year. I mean, why not? That's exactly right. It's the whole like government regulations slash quasi-regulation created a standard that everyone conforms around as opposed to innovating. And drove all the innovation out of the market because of the size of the federal intervention. That is a big deal because most market downturns in real estate, certainly on the mortgage side, were kind of paved over with product development. Like, So if nobody wanted the conventional product, and the organic demand for the conventional product was gone because interest rates went up or they were in a recession or something like that, industrious, creative finance people would come up with new products that would compel people to take out a mortgage, buy a house. Some of them are irresponsible. Some of the borrowers are irresponsible, whatever. But in the absence of the private market, which we all know has pretty much been eviscerated since the global financial crisis, great financial crisis. God, Frank, but the- Put the private market out. Let's think about that for a second. 1978, 1982, pick some time at the end of Carter and the beginning of Reagan. Interest rates at one of those points, 16, 18%, people were still buying houses. Oh my Lord, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the the, uh, variable rate mortgage. And people were banking on interest rates coming down before they had to refi, and they did. The problem became, you know, later on, you talk about government intervention, where we were sort of incenting people to take the variable rates when interest rates were really, really low. And then when they went up and they had to refi, they got caught. That was the financial crisis. So, Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's interesting. I was thinking about um, the CARES Act was, was one of those points in time that reminded me of that jump the shark moment of like uh, the qualified mortgage. So after Dodd-Frank came out, QM came out, you're like, huh, I never thought that the government would be able to legislate the risks that private lenders could take. So this is Kind of a novel new approach, but I don't know what the it's implications a fascinating conversation are. Eric and I have because we, we, we do it to, we, we, you know, we, we met each other through the CFPB. And of course, the big hook during Dodd Frank is people were lending money, banks were lending money that people couldn't afford to pay back. They knew they couldn't afford to pay back. And now the argument behind the student loan forgiveness is that all of these people borrowed money that the lender knew they couldn't pay back. But the lender has been since 2011 the federal government because they privatized, they nationalized. Uh, student loans as part of the Affordable Care Act. People don't realize that, 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 the, that we nationalized student loans in this country as part of the Affordable Care Act because the government needed the money from the student loan business in order to pay for, and I'm making the air quotes in my in, now, the pay for the Affordable Care Act, which also means that every time we are now doing this loan forgiveness or uh, abatements and so forth in the student loan mortgage, it's increasing the cost of the Affordable Care Act. You've got to love government intervention. Amen. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. So it's interesting. I mean, we've looked at that student loan as a case study for essentially some version of nationalization of the mortgage market. You could argue that since the GSEs have been in conservatorship, it's more or less nationalized. But could there be an event, a point in time, given the stresses in the market, 
particularly for independent mortgage bankers who are, if you think of the GSEs of instruments of public policy, the true instruments of public policy are the guys actually taking the applications, doing the servicing and things like that. And they're struggling with terrible economics, obviously driven by monetary policy in large part. And so in any case, where do you think that leaves them today? I mean, at what point in the mortgage life cycle is the federal government not sitting there at the table, right? As, as one of you pointed out, the federal government regulates the risks that can be taken by the IMBs. The federal government at the end of the day is the checkbook, either through Ginny guaranteeing the securities or Fannie and Freddie issuing them, which is 80% owned by Treasury. And then even beyond that, at the servicing stage, you've got Reg X and, you know, they're off-brand. I think there are some good things that came out of Reg X and RESPA reform coming out 2008 because there were real servicing failures. And that is one of the few areas where there's a serious market disconnect between kind of how... Tila reforms were a joke. Yes, I, I didn't say Tila. By the, way, by the way, in my background, I, I forgot to do the... In addition to building houses and developing land, I used to do loan closings back when I was a lawyer before I was in the home building and real estate business. And I got news for you. They're less clear now than they were in 1996. I think that if everyone knowing what they know now could redo TRID, they would redo TRID. But we're stuck with TRID until some major reforms happen. But the federal government is there monitoring your servicing. It's there monitoring your default servicing. It is there monitoring your servicing transfers. It's monitoring your foreclosures. At every step of the way, there is serious government intervention. So it is kind of hard for me to think about a real estate slash mortgage industry that's not also thinking about federal government programs. And even if, you know, the way we have financing set up, even if all these legal requirements around how you service and everything else weren't there, there would still be the seller servicer guide, which... Like I said, Treasury is an 80% owner of the people who put out the seller servicer guide. So you will have government intervention that way too. So even if it was purely a quote unquote free market making mixed air quotes, you would still have substantial government involvement in setting the terms of every transaction. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it right. Obviously, no one would engineer the circumstances we certainly find ourselves in. But it's interesting when you're talking about Mick was talking about kind of different mortgage regimes around the world. And he's right that in Europe, they do the five-year at a 30-year AM with a balloon payment. They do that in Canada too. I'm pretty sure that Dodd-Frank basically made that illegal here because one of the features of what's called mid-2000s loans was a 40-year AM with a 30-year payment schedule. And that kind of stuff, including NEGAM and kind of all the messing with the math was made illegal, right? So if you want to have a, or not illegal, you know. For all intents and purposes. Yes, for all intents and purposes. Too risky to originate, let's put it that way. For So if you want to have kind of that kind of innovation or move back toward that model, you can't just do it regulatory. You have to like get people, both sides of the aisle together and say, we need to fundamentally rethink the government intervention in the mortgage market so we can allow things like this to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, we touched on this before. You have, I mean, the government is clearly, I think, like you, Mick, thinking that, the, the, in my mind, the government hopefully is thinking that home ownership is probably the last legitimate wealth creation opportunity for us. It doesn't make it risk-free, but it's certainly a part of the American dream. And as you look at 
the two aspects that we touched on right now, which was the student loan business and then the, the housing business, they obviously shared a lot of similarities, but we touched on, in my mind, they, they share these two common sort of threads that they're both perceived as requirements for success. To be part of the American dream, you need to have a college degree. To be part of the American dream, you need to own a house. All of those different things, how they achieve it and how risky it is seems to be less important than achieving it, both from the government perspective and from the individual perspective. And some of that might be driven by the moral hazard associated with the federal government essentially backstopping and then nationalizing the student loan market. So I don't know if either of you have I mean, an opinion. I, I guess I agree with part of the premise. I, I, we can sort of split hairs and say that, you know, a college degree is not necessarily part of the American dream. It can be part of the American dream. So is vocational training, all that kind of stuff. And yes, I think we have sort of warped that market and encouraging people to go to meaningless four-year schools. I mean, I, goodness gracious, you see what some of the schools charge these days and go, holy cow. And the degrees, the kids coming out there, less educated than high school kids were 20 years ago. So that, that's a larger discussion. But generally speaking, education is a good thing and does help you achieve the American dream. Home ownership, I still continue to believe is a good thing for the reasons we've talked about and does help you accomplish the American dream. It raises a really interesting philosophical question. Is the government in the business of guaranteeing you the American dream? Because if those things are rights, right, that's really what we're getting to is it, you have a right to own a home, you have a right to education, just like you have a right to healthcare. That's a fascinating conversation because it leads to the difference between positive rights and negative rights. Mm -hmm. And then what is the role of government? And as I tell people, if you have a human right to housing, if Eric has a human right to housing, it means I have an obligation to give it to him. That period, end of story. The beautiful things about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is they're negative rights. And really all, all it requires me to do as your fellow citizen is not interfere with you. I do nothing and you win. You get your life, you get your liberty, you get your pursuit of happiness because I don't interfere with it. If you don't have a right to a house, I have to give it to you. If you have a right to healthcare, I have to give it to you. If you have a right to education, I have to give it to you. That's a conversation I don't think takes place. We throw those words around so lightly now. Oh, you have a right to this. You have a right to that. No, you don't. You have a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And as soon as you say you have a right to this, it means somebody has an obligation to give it to you. And I don't think we understand that side of the equation well enough. I know that's more philosophical than, than practical, but it is sort of underlying a lot of this discussion about home ownership. Well, a lot of this too has to do with anything you want to add, Eric? I was just going to say the original formulation of pursuit of happiness was acquiring and possessing property. So that's where the... No, it wasn't. See, that's what... No, and it's very, it's very rarely that, point that, point. that you and I, that I get you and I get you caught on something where you're wrong because he's a lot smarter than I am. That's why, that's why I like working with him. No, the original Jefferson was in Greek. I'm quoting George Mason from the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Which exactly. Is and, and it appears a couple different times in right, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Property. And I get that. And Jefferson didn't like that. So he, he, uh, he used the Greek word eudaimonia, which is the manifestation of virtue. It doesn't translate very well into English. It essentially means you have the right to become the best human being that you have the ability to be given your God-given talents. That is what the pursuit of happiness is supposed to be. It's not property. I finally got that conversation with Blankenstein. We're waiting on that for you. Hello, this is, this, yeah. this is the definition of small talk in D.C. This is, this is the conversations so, we have. Yeah, this is what we used to do at CFPB all the time. So. This is why people don't like to listen to our conversations. Getting over on Eric is, is tough, so I commend you on finding that opportunity. We could do baseball, too, if you want to. Uh, we could talk to you. Well, so along that lines, I mean, part of this 
issue around student loans or college tuitions and home ownership, it's kind of like, should everybody do it? Yeah. Should you do it at any price? Probably not. And the only reason that people will do it at any price, certainly on the college side, was because, in fact, most people think that they'll never pay back the student loans that they've gotten that are government backed. And now I think post this is the jump the shark moment when CARES Act came to conclusion or basically legislated that the government can determine whether or not someone stays into a house, whether you're renting, owning, and for how long, and even equally curious, it was done at the expense of the private sector. I'm not challenging on it in the sense, but it is curious whether it was intentional or whether- I have these conversations with my Democrat friends all the time. You said a lot more when I was on financial services, but we've had these conversations about whether or not we're changing people's behavior, whether or not now people are getting a college education thinking, oh, I don't have to pay for it. I have to pay it back. Oh, I'll buy a house. I don't have to pay for it. And on my Democrats say, well, that's that's outrageous. People don't think like that. And I'm like, look at the data. And the data used to be that the very first thing that everybody paid every single month was the mortgage or the rent. Because if you didn't get that, you didn't have a place to live. And then there was this prioritization of payments. And there's decades of data on this, on what Americans prioritize in terms of what they pay, especially when things get tight. What's the first thing they pay now? The TV and the cell phone. The TV and the cell phone is the first things they pay. The car comes then, and the mortgage is way down on the list because they know it's really hard to get kicked out of your house. Not impossible yet, but really, really hard. So people, we can change their behavior and we have in fact changed their behaviors. The proof is in the pudding that it used to be that people would consider the mortgage to be the most important thing and the thing they had to pay back. By the way, in my family, it's always the life insurance policy because my wife, I'm worth a lot more dead than I am alive. But we've changed people's behavior through government intervention. Specific to the CARES Act, it had a, a provision in it that would related that defined something that was like a federally related mortgage or something like that. So even there, they kind of were recognizing the federal intervention in the mortgage market because the idea was that for the most part, if there were wholly private mortgages that weren't Fannie, Freddie, or Ginny, that you know, very broadly, there were some other dogs and cats that were in there. But if you weren't in those buckets, you could basically do what you want. There were some protections on the end. And then independent of that, there was the eviction and foreclosure moratorium. But specific to the CARES Act, it was basically doing what we had talked about before, which is recognizing that the government is your partner and the government then gets to set the terms and conditions of how the mortgage market operates. So when there is a crisis, it's okay, we control 85% of the market. Here's how we're going to handle that 85% of the market. You don't have to pay if you're having a COVID-related issue. And then we'll figure something out on the back end since we're holding all the credit risk. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I think that, that lines up. Now, as we're thinking about you know government role in housing and whatnot, what about the goals-rich stuff? That kind of ties in nicely to the college tuition stuff, college admission stuff, and the home ownership stuff is you see that the FHFA has taken, I don't know, I don't want to say liberties, but they've they've expanded probably the depth of existing statutes statutes by having Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac come out with these equitable housing plans, which was how are they specifically going to act on improving, increasing minority home ownership? And on some level, kind of along consistent with our current discussion is we all probably want everyone to be homeowners who's capable, willing, and able to. We're all about sustainable home ownership. However, now 
I'm fearful that sustainable home ownership could be defined now not as somebody who's going to have the willing and ability to make the payments for the foreseeable future, but instead, under certain circumstances, allowing them to forbear their payments, right. to not pay without sort of any sort of a payment. And then by definition, that's pretty damn sustainable because they don't have to pay and we're not going to evict them. Well, it's not sustainable because someone has to pay for that, right? It's not free. So it's not sustainable. It's, it's sustainable to one side of the equation, but not the other. And that is, by definition, not sustainable. You have to set up a system that works for both sides of the equation or else the market goes away. Well, and that's why you end up with markets that are, if you have 100 years that we talked about demand side sort of policies that were all about expanding credit, lowering interest rates, lowering down payments and all those things. But for, I think, probably after World War II, the national highway system, all of the building for the veterans coming home from the war, that's the only one I can think of. You were a builder. That's the only one I can think of in the last 100 years. And that's probably why we're finding that people are forced to buy at six times median income right now, which is the median price, versus the historical average of three times. It almost begs the question that if you're a policymaker, you're like, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to have values come down a third to get back in line. That's the right thing to do. Tough platform to get elected on. Um, Or you extend it 50 or 60 years. Let's have that conversation because I know we wanted to stay at the federal level, but there's a basic reason why housing is more expensive than we want it to be. There's a basic reason that that the cost of housing is going up faster than the, the CPI. We don't build enough housing. We just don't. California, I think for years and years, uh, was like a million units a year short from what they needed. Okay, This is a local decision. People have made the decision they don't want housing in their local communities for whatever reason. There's a nimbyism aspect to it in many places. There's a racial aspect to it. There's an economic aspect to it. No one wants to live next to poor people, supposedly, right? But we don't build enough housing. So the federal government really wanted to come in and solve a problem. They would simply give the states some incentive to do more housing. That's a real simple supply and demand analysis. Yeah, I think Jim Perry came out with something on the Urban Institute with, I think it was Mark Zandi, that covered some of these things like the payments. I think there's like $70 billion a year the federal government pays to states for highway maintenance and things like that. That was one of like five things. So, I mean, they do have some some leverage in that scenario. In fact, I just had this conversation with a, with a member of Congress the other day that not relevant to housing, but we're doing the math. David Schweikert's a good friend of mine. David's um, one of the rare members of Congress who can count. <laughs> and we're going over the discussions they're having now with the new House leadership and so forth over spending. And if you take the non, okay, you take the discretionary spending, which is about 25% of the budget. So let's say it's a trillion dollars. Then you take the non-defense part of that. Actually, I think it's 1.7 trillion. It's gone up since I was the budget director. So you take the the non-defense part of the discretionary, and that leaves you about half. So let's say for sake of this discussion, you got $800 billion to spend. Like 40% of that is transfers to state and local government, the pass-throughs. So there's a huge sum of money that the federal government moves to the states and localities every single year. And as we all know, with money comes influence. And yes, they could be, listen, they've used it before. I mean, they use that money to raise the drinking age from 18 to 21 in states. They use it to do a bunch of other things. Why can't they use it to encourage more housing? That might be something that is worth discussion. Without commenting on the propriety of the policy, this is what the Obama administration and the Biden administration are using for their affirmatively affirmatively furthering fair housing program in that they are taking a big chunk of this transfer to state and local governments and basically putting conditions on it 
around zoning, around density, around demographics to address all of these issues that Mick raised that are kind of leading to these housing problems. And they're trying to do this and take kind of the use the leverage that they get from funding all of these programs and trying to shape behavior at the state and local level as the condition of receiving these funds. Thank you for that. Hey, uh, real quick, just bringing it back to the independent mortgage bankers side of things. I mean, the struggle right now, of course, has been since interest rates have gone up, you've seen volume, origination volume go down 70 odd percent. Fortunately, delinquencies are near historic lows. So that means that the companies that are servicing the mortgages don't really have to advance to like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or to Ginnie Mae investors, the payments, the missed payments of these companies. But there's no doubt that because the transaction volume is so low that these folks are dealing with some pretty challenging economics of their business. And as we discussed, they really are the where the rubber meets the road for housing policy. And as I'm fond of saying, patriotism doesn't compel companies to stay in the mortgage business. Capitalism does, but it doesn't appear that this is a little arcane, but for this purpose, but it doesn't feel like the federal government is either paying attention to the risks to the system and ultimately how that flows through to unavailability of mortgage credit and all those things and ultimately what they should be doing differently. Well, what they've been doing different is probably spending less money because the root cause of the problem here is inflation, right? The reason there's less origination is that it's more expensive to buy a house mostly because interest rates are up, right? Yes, prices are up because of the supply-demand disconnect we talked about. But in the last couple of months or year or so, the, the real driver of the, of the reduction in new origination is interest rates. And the government could fix that. Excuse me. The government's been trying to fix it. Not very well, mostly because monetary policy has not been able to trump a bizarre fiscal policy. But yeah, listen, I've got no problem with there being fewer mortgage originators when the interest rates are high because we don't need them, right? And that's that's the market working properly. And I know there's folks on this podcast probably don't like that very much, but that's life. And when interest rates come back down, if they ever do, and we talk about that in a second, then there'll be more mortgage origination. There'll be more entrance into the market. That's how markets work. My fear is that interest rates are here for uh, are going to be extended for a period of time. I have an example of why I think that, and it's different than what everybody else talks about. We talk about fiscal stimulus and the federal government could not balance its budget if you put guns to their head. If you put a gun to the head of every single member of Congress and said balance the budget, they would get shot. I'm not joking about that. They don't know how to do it. They've never done it. They've been so long since we've talked about even balancing the budget. They don't care. They're hardwired. The the easiest, the, the most common line I remember encountering on all my budget interactions with the Congress was, we can't afford not to. That is a real sentence that, that happens all of the time. Whenever they want something, they can't afford not to do it. The words that don't exist on Capitol Hill are offsets or pay for They don't ever, 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 ever do that. Like right now, the administration sent down a $106 billion request for uh, mostly for Ukraine. And no one's even trying to have a conversation about how to pay for that. They're going to print the money, which is going to be stimulative and inflationary. But to get down deep in the weeds to what most folks didn't see. And it sounds like it's not that big a deal, but in my geek insider government world, it is a huge deal, which is the president's budget from this past spring. There's a really boring part of the president's budget that nobody pays attention to. And budgets are typically boring documents anyway. They're messaging documents, not spending documents. Government spends money, not the White House. 
But one of the interesting parts about every president's budget is the macroeconomic forecasts that are buried in the tables at the back of the document, which is always the first place I look because I don't care what they want to spend on a particular project. I care about what, what, what the Congress is going to spend. But go look at the macroeconomic projections. Now they give you estimates of what they think GDP is going to be, what they think unemployment is going to be, and what they think inflation is going to be for the next 10 years. Now, from time immemorial, okay, what has the long-term inflation target been for the Federal Reserve? 2%. Okay, That's right. And if you go back and you look at all of our budgets, they might be up or down in years one, two, three, four. But by the time you got to years six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, everybody always assumes we're going to go back to the 2% level. Those numbers are set by the economic troika, which uh, includes the manager or the office director of management budget, the treasury secretary, then typically either CEA or NEC in the White House, right? So I set them along with uh, Steve Mnuchin and, and Gary Cohn. The president's budget this year, if you look at, I think it's schedule seven at the back, the long-term inflationary projections, they go up and they go up now because we you know years one, two, and three, they expect it to be a little bit above the target. It goes to 2.3 and then 2.3, and then 2.3, and 2.3 forever, okay? It doesn't sound like much, but people listening to this podcast know that over 10 years, the difference between 2% inflation and 2.3% inflation is kind of a big deal. (laughs) And noteworthy, Janet Yellen is one of the people setting those numbers. Now, if there's anybody who should be familiar with the fact that that number is supposed to go to 2%, it should be the former chairman of of the Fed, right? And she's down there signing off on 2.3%. So for what that tells me is that the people in Washington who look really, really hard at the numbers and make decisions are saying to themselves, we are not going back to a 2% environment. We're going to something higher than that. Put 2.3 on the piece of paper, but we're giving up on the 2.0% long-term inflationary targets at the Fed. How much does that assumption feed into the budget estimates? So is there a way that having 2.3 is gaming kind of revenues, for example, or trying to keep costs the same? Like, I'm just not familiar Mm -hmm. enough with how it feeds back. A a little bit, because it would increase your projections on tax revenues. You get to set your own spending numbers, Gary, because you can sort of jigger with that. So yeah, it can help you make a deficit look lower, just like an unreasonably rosy unemployment rate or an unreasonably rosy GDP can help you long-term balance the budget. So yes, there is a financial incentive to them to do that. So this might be a hard pivot, but it's actually probably not too far afield from what we were talking about. So next week, so this is my way of kind of doing research. I'm speaking at AEI on modern monetary theory. So anybody not familiar with, just hang up now. Thanks for joining. But it is interesting because it kind of plays in all of this, which is in a nutshell, if you were to crack open a fortune cookie, it would say something, the MMT is that if you're a source of capital, then debts and deficits don't matter. And then you can basically spend your way into whatever you define as prosperity as a consequence. The United States seems to think that they fall in that category as the reserve currency. Therefore, we're spending roughly $2 trillion a year in deficit spending for things that don't appear to be outside of the maybe part of the Inflation Reduction Act infrastructure bill, rather, that bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's not entirely clear that this is ultimately a responsible thing to do, that you ultimately can keep borrowing without any sort of consequence, pay for all of these transfer payments for entitlement spending and whatnot. There's a lot of good things that would benefit from it. But is it sustainable 
long-term, this concept of monetary theory, it should be rhetorical, but there's enough smart rhetorical. people. No, in fact, it was never it was never real in the first place. It was it was backing into what you wanted to do. It's like, okay, we want to spend a bunch of money. Give us an economic theory that allows us to do that. <laughs> it's like me on Google. Like I just gotta Google enough times to get the right answer. That's exactly right. And so one of the interesting sort of inside the beltway uh, conversations that in the last year as inflation has been is really dug in is that I don't hear anybody up on the hill going to the I want, I'm a geek, right? And I go, we'll go watch the times when members of Congress are talking to an empty chamber just to see what they're talking about. No one's talking about monetary, <laughs> modern monetary theory anymore. And listen, the, the criticism of it that you know, folks like I and Eric and the other, other more non-Keynesians have always said is like, look, monetary, mo- monetary theory works until it doesn't. And then it stopped working. So now it doesn't exist anymore. And my guess is it's not going to come back. There'll be a new theory that comes forward justifying spending. It will probably go back following on more Keynesian. We can't afford not to spend the money because if we don't spend the money, then the economy is going to crash, et cetera. The only thing propping it up is government spending, et cetera. There is a deeper sort of philosophical underpinning to the Keynesian arguments that we've heard that we're going to continue to hear, which is that if you go back and you study the, the response to the Great Depression, and this carries all the way through to some of the stuff that Bernanke wrote when, before he was Fed chairman, Keynesians really hate unemployment. They really, really do. And there's a reason for that. It's not an irrational position for them to take. In the trade-offs, because that's what it is, a trade-off between inflation and unemployment, because you can get rid of unemployment by inflating, right? By just printing money and giving it to people. And that way they feel like they're employed. The the trade-off is this, is that long-term unemployment is more threatening to the stability of a society because the costs are borne really heavily by a minority of people. And if that minority of people gets to be 25%, like it was during the Great Depression, that can threaten the stability of a government and of a nation. And that's right. That You can make that case. That's not an irrational position to take. If, however, you go to inflation, you're like, well, okay, well, inflation is really bad too, but at least it's borne by everybody. And everybody sort of feels like they're all in this together. It is less threatening to the stability of society. That's hardwired into the way Keynesians look at things. And my guess is that's where we're going to start to see the conversation go in the future. I don't think they're going back to modern monetary theory because it's been completely discredited. And when even Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is no longer talking about it, you got to think that they're afraid to go in and even say the letters together, MMT, for fear of being laughed out of the building. I feel like it's actually worse than you're you're making it out to be because it usually probably is. The, you're a lot more you're of course you're a lot more, you know, of a downer than I am. The thing that yeah. the uh, MMT supporters relied on to control inflation was we're going to spend everything we can spend and if that spending becomes inflationary, we're just going to raise taxes. From a realistic standpoint, we saw, right? We see that raising taxes is not politically viable. But if you just look at history, federal tax collections are almost tax regime agnostic in that yeah, it's 20%. They, exactly. It, it, it's between 17 and 20 percent forever, like literally since we've had the income tax. Hmm. You can have a marginal rate of 90 percent. You can have a marginal rate of 26 percent. And it fluctuates everywhere in between. And you can change it short term. You can get a little you can get a little burst for a year or two. But then the economy adjusts. Exactly. Up at 20 percent. again. So, so you dip below 15 for a little bit, you'll dip, you'll hit above 20, but it gets into that very narrow range. So even if 
there was political will to change the tax regime. History shows us that you still couldn't solve the problem they're trying to solve for them. Uh, you could if you simply expropriate, right? Yeah, the, you have a Fifth or, Amendment. Or appropriate. Appropriate. Well, but I mean, they're, trying, they're, they're talking about a wealth tax now. They, they've got up there. There's a case at the Supreme Court this term on uh, unrealized gains to see whether or not that qualifies as income. So just taking a, the money, as a, taking wealth as opposed to taking yeah. income. Because you're right, the, the 17, 18, 19%, 20%, I just call it 20 because it's a nice round number, goes back to the institution of the income tax. Yeah. All right, well, let's bring it home to an election year. So you have an election year. Tax policy is not getting you all well, excited. I mean, I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean, if you are if you were on the Hill and you were kind of thinking about, like, what are the messages they're trying to get across? As Eric knows, my point of view from a political campaigning, shared sacrifice, tricky. I'm kidding. Nobody wants to hear that crap, right? So if you're running for re-election, you almost have to lean into this MMT sort of thing so that you can have something to promote and then you're like, but once I get in office, man, we're really going to put our arms around That's this so, damn thing. That is so wonderfully and refreshingly naive. I really it? like it. It really is. It, you still it's a regional. Think, you think that people still campaign on policies. I think that's quaint and lovely and wonderful. It's nowhere near the truth. I think they just know how to manipulate their shit. Well, well, you know, there's some of that, but face it, the election is going to turn on Trump versus not Trump. And is Biden, you know, is he mentally capable and... It's not going to turn on foreign policy. It very rarely does unless there's some dramatic blow up overseas. It's going to turn on personalities like it does most of the time. Keep in mind that there's 40% of the country that's going to vote Republican, 40% that's going to vote Democrat, and 20% in the middle are going to decide. And most of those people don't know which part. I, got, I get asked this question a lot during the recent um, the difficulty that Republicans had picking a speaker. People say, well, do you think this is going to impact their, their prospects in the in the midterm elections. I'm like, are you serious? Most people who make, who sort of swing one way or the other have no clue which party's in charge of which <laughs> chamber of, of Congress. They don't even they, know who their representative they is. They don't know who the representative is. Most of them don't know there's three branches of government. Mm-hmm. I, we're lucky if they know what, you know, who the president is and what party he is in. So no, I, I don't think any of that factors in to politics. What people vote on is their pocketbook. And if they feel like they're better off than they were four years ago, they're going to keep the incumbent, whoever that happens to be. If they feel like they're not, they're going to vote for whoever the other people is. And they'll figure out who's incumbent and who's not. And that's typically what moves the needle. I got elected in 2010 in the Tea Party wave. Everybody was really upset with what the Democrats were doing on health care. In 2018, you know, we lost control because of a variety of things, including our inability to talk about health care. So those were and right now the reason that Joe Biden is in trouble electorally is because the economy is bad and people know it. Economy's, by the way, not that bad. The GDP numbers yesterday were really good. It's just not translating through to personal household wealth and stability. People still go to bed worried about money. And as long as they're doing that, they're going to vote for whoever's the party out of power. And I, I hate to be harsh on you about being so quaint and so forth, but yeah, I think people tend to, especially in this town, tend to overthink elections. No, no I, I totally agree. I, I, I say those things kind of tongue in cheek because yeah. it's, it's kind of silly. But It'd be nice if we, it's nice we actually had those conversations. Yeah, I've been in this town for too long not to be terribly cynical. That's right. Yeah. It'd be nice if we had conversations about policy and tax policy. I'd love to have a discussion about state and local tax deduction. I would love for that to drive outcomes in politics. It's not going to. So, Eric, anything you want to add to that? I think everything Mick said is 100% correct, but it ties everything we've been talking about together, right? If the voters care, you know, go rationally go to sleep at night caring about 
what their pocketbook looks like, then it makes sense that the government is then incentivized to, you know, to use your phrase, stimulate demand or subsidize demand and give money to them, which leads to the MMT, which leads to our kind of housing policy where the federal government's sitting at the table with everybody. It's all kind of a piece where because the people react to certain, or I should say act in certain ways in, in their political behavior, government reacts to that. And so we have deficits and we have debts and we have all the spending that had to deal with and we have our housing policy that we have. And so that just tells me that we're going to keep having that until the American people want something different. But the other thing is the American people can change on a dime. And, you know, that's mixed forte in terms of understanding how and when that'll happen, but it will. All right. Thank you for that. So I'm going to close. You guys can either potluck it and come up with your own closing thoughts, or I can leave you with one last sort of question. I'm just curious. I mean, what do you think? How would you forecast, basically, well, you don't have to forecast the housing market, but the government's role. Is there a circumstance where you could see them saying, man, we thought this was enough. We got to go further. Is there a circumstance where they might think, I think we've done enough here. Let's get out of it. Knowing that these companies, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac specifically, are coughing up $1,000 bills and serving the government's interests and policies around housing, home ownership, rental affordability, all this. All right, it's my turn now to be the cynic instead of Blankenstein. See if he can out cynic me on this Challenge one. accepted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's inevitable that the government intervention into the market will continue unabated. The only question is going to be whether or not it's rapid under Democrat control or a little bit more measured under Republican control. But the overwhelming majority of those elected to Congress now believe in government intervention in one way or another. Jeb Hensling and I would be in the minority, even within the Republican Party. There are very, very few true free marketers left in either party. The Republican Party is now a populist party. It's not a conservative party. Donald Trump is running saying we, you know, we can't even talk about Social Security and Medicare. Do you think he's going to talk about unchaining the market forces in housing? There's no way he's going to try and figure out a way to give more to those folks than the Democrats would. That's where politics is right now. I don't see that changing for the foreseeable future, you might get once the next generation of both parties come in, you've got a chance to sort of maybe change direction. If you go through a tremendous crisis where the government finally realizes they can't spend their way out of it, that's a possibility. But I don't see those things happening immediately. So I think over the course of the rest of my adult lifetime will be the slow, inexorable growth of government and the influence it has in this market and in every market. I agree with everything you said. I'm surprised it hasn't grown faster given just the funding advantages and the fact that the federal government does not have to worry about turning a profit like every other market actor does. The one thing where I will out cynic you is you mentioned kind of debt crisis. I think the bond market will have something to say about this at some point in the future. And if our borrowing costs are- It will. At some point, like I said, we're going to balance the budget eventually. We're either <laughs> going to do it you know, sooner under our terms and conditions or later under somebody else's terms and conditions. It's going to happen. But that, that's my point is the sooner rather than later. I don't see it happening in the next 20 years. The bond market, you know, going to 5% is not a bond price. Going to 20% is a bond price. <laughs> is a debt but at some point, the bond market will start to care. And it's starting to care a little bit now. Right it's now. starting to care more later. And there's such a big footprint in housing that you know you got to go where the money is. And so if your choice is cut entitlements or cut the subsidy to Fannie and Freddie and FHA, that's an easy answer. I mean, you're the politician. So 
you might tell me I'm wrong, but I think that those are the first things that get cut when there's a real crisis in the bond market. Hey, living indoors is still seems to be an American uh, bias, sort of. So, I mean, that's a bipartisan issue, right? Whether you're a renter or an owner. So I think to mix point and air point, it's, it's going to continue down that path. The government's not going to cede it, particularly when they can make as much money as they are. And frankly, through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, through a long working lunch between FHFA and Treasury, you can pretty much do anything you want with those organizations, raise the loan amounts, change the GPs, change the requirements for who they lend to or how they service mortgages. So I think, yeah, for the foreseeable future, you're going to continue to see that grow until fill in the blank. But I think that's enough for today. I greatly appreciate you both being here. Mick, really a special treat. Eric, always great catching up. Folks, thanks for tuning in and uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.